Hello, and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley, and I want to thank you for being with us. You know, back when I was a kid, I heard a song whose lyrics stick in my mind to this day. The year was 1964, and the song was Nina Simone's iconic Mississippi Goddamn. It was a song tailor-made for the times the nation was in back there, during the height of the Civil Rights Movement and the height of resistance to it. Fast forward to now, and Mississippi may have erected an anti-choice law that just might pass muster with the United States Supreme Court. In fact, most of the media has already concluded that the high court will vote to gut Roe v. Wade, the constitutional right Mississippi seeks to take away from women of its state, and rest assured, many other states will follow, depending on how the court rules. It hasn't been settled and won't be for some time, but it looks like the clever legislature of Mississippi has created a law that criminalizes a woman's right to choose. So exactly where has Mississippi stood in the past with protecting the rights of its citizens? Let's go back to the beginning of the Civil War. What was that state's rationale for seceding from the Union? Here are the words of Mississippi's traitors at the point they decided to break away from the USA. This is not me. This is a direct quote. Quote, our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest of the world. A blow at slavery is a blow at commerce and civilization. End quote. Think about that for a minute. Commerce, in this case, trump the humanity of oppressed people. Do they teach this in school? I'm just asking. Anyway, the author, Lucian K. Truscott the Fourth, has just written a brilliant piece on Mississippi's paternalistic view that it knew and now knows what's best for its citizens. After the Civil War, Mississippi adopted Jim Crow laws that proscribed the legal rights of black people and then backed it up with state-sanctioned violence. Now, however, instead of using its power as a bludgeon against black people, as they have so often in the past, they're now using that power on women. And it looks like the highest court in the land is about to back their play. So all this demands a close look at how the state of Mississippi looks out for its citizens. Again, this is not according to me, it's according to U.S. News. So I'm thinking most folks won't think it's socialist dogma. Its rankings put Mississippi dead last in providing health care for its citizens. Number 43 in education. Its economy is number 49. Its infrastructure is number 48. And opportunity is number 44. Good looking out, Mississippi. While we're at it, we should also be clear about this. Rich white women will still be able to get abortions, whether in Mississippi or a nearby state that allows them. This court case is all about poor, black, and brown women. They'll try and convince you it's not, but don't fall for it. Conservatives have managed to gut key provisions of the Voting Rights Act and attempt a not-so-subtle grab at the levers of power through state legislatures and gerrymandering. So the question is, how do the 59% of Americans who support a woman's right to choose fight back? That figure, by the way, 
is according to the latest polling on the subject. It would seem that there are, believe it or not, one or two options. One would be for the Congress to enshrine a woman's right to choose into law. Another more controversial option would be to expand the membership of the Supreme Court itself. That may or may not happen. I saw a story the other day that said there are more and more Democratic members of Congress who, as they look at what may happen to Roe v. Wade, are not adverse to expanding the Supreme Court. Might be difficult, but might happen. Yet when you think about it, how can conservatives reconcile opposing a woman's right to choose while at the same time saying it's a person's right to choose whether or not to get vaccinated against COVID? The hypocrisy, at least to me, is obvious. One other thing to consider, a woman's right to choose isn't just about whether or not to terminate a pregnancy. It's also about controlling a woman's right to have consensual sex. Again, they'll tell you, oh no, that's not true. Don't buy it. And is there a sanction on men having such relations? I'll wait. There's one thing the state of Mississippi may not have banked on. Overturn Roe v. Wade and you hand Democrats a guilt-edged campaign issue to use against Republicans in next year's midterm elections. It is a crying shame this deeply personal issue has to be seen through a political prism, but whatever the decision the Supreme Court makes will be seen as political. I think before any decision is made, every member of the court who hasn't already done so, and I think there may be one or two who in fact have, they need to spend some time in and around an abortion clinic. What they'll see are the anguished faces of women who too often have been abandoned by the men who got them pregnant in the first place. That feeling is something no man could ever understand or even imagine. Sad to say, those women take abortion far more seriously than the state of Mississippi does. When we come back, yet another mass shooting at an American school. This time, though, the state is going after the kids' parents. This is The Intersection. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, public enemy number one, and you are listening to The Intersection with my hero, Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. It seems as though the hand-wringing that usually accompanies school shootings in America has already begun to fade. Some in media are characterizing the murder of four people at the Oxford High School in Oxford, Michigan as balancing the safety of children against the freedoms allegedly allowed under the Second Amendment. How about we look back only as far as Columbine in 1999 and Sandy Hook in 2012 and Oxford in 2021, and those are just a few, and ask ourselves what substantially has been done to keep students safe and lethal weapons out of the hands of young people who might use them. The answer, sadly, is not much. That's where the hand-wringing comes in. Even half-hearted attempts at stemming gun violence have been hamstrung by the gun lobby. In this case, however, one thing appears 
to be different. In addition to charging 15-year-old Ethan Crumbly as an adult with murder and other offenses, his parents, Jennifer and James Crumbly, have also been charged with four counts of involuntary manslaughter. They pleaded not guilty after fleeing and finally being found hiding in a Detroit warehouse. It is highly unusual for the parents of a school shooter to be criminally charged, but law enforcement believe they have ample reason. The parents were summoned to Oxford High School the day of the shootings to discuss Ethan Crumbly's behavior, which included drawings of a gun and a person bleeding with laughing emojis. The parents resisted taking taking Ethan out of school. Charges are being brought against the parents despite the fact that there is no law in the state of Michigan requiring them to keep guns out of the reach of children. Maybe there will be now. Meanwhile, the nation moves on. No one I know of seriously believes the Oxford school shootings will create an epiphany on gun control that other shooting tragedies have not. That perhaps is the ultimate tragedy here. America has become numb, not just to the loss of life, but to anyone's ability to change the equation. We know there'll be other shootings in schools, in shopping malls, workplaces, discos, and the like. And just like this one, we'll wring our hands, some will rage at the futility born of the nation's love affair with guns, and we, collectively, will move on. It's now a reflex, one that fails on a basic level to find a level of empathy with the teenagers killed in this case or the families of mass shooting victims lost to the senseless need to buy guns to guard against who knows what. It about leads me to argue that the nation ought to consider repealing or severely restricting the Second Amendment. Now, I know how whack that sounds to an awful lot of people, but it's, I think, time to think about it. Have a discussion about it. Argue about it, maybe. After all, if a court can gut an established constitutional right in Woe v. Wade, why not take away the right to keep and bear arms if it, in fact, will save lives? I know, and I'm saying this knowing, that there's no way on God's green earth this will happen. But what we do, or more importantly, what do we owe the lives of those needlessly lost to gun violence, whether it's in a suburban school or a street in a major city or in California where a lovely woman by the name of Jacqueline Avon lost her life to gun violence by way of a home invasion. She was the late wife of the great Clarence Avon. And any of you who've seen The Black Godfather know, I assume, who he is. And even Jacqueline Avon, a woman who gave of her own time and effort and philanthropy in trying to help those less fortunate, she lost her life to gun violence. And this is what we have wrought by easy access to guns, and placing them in the hands of those who will use them to take human life. What do we get from all this? Hate to say it, I guess just more hand-wringing. And finally, how does a once-respected journalist 
falls so far down the rabbit hole that they compare Dr. Anthony Fauci to Joseph Mengele. This is The Intersection. Join the conversation at Mark Riley Media on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. Glad you're sticking and staying with us. Long ago, in a galaxy far, far away, Lara Logan was a respected journalist. She had a treasured spot as a correspondent for CBS's 60 Minutes, as well as working in war zones around the world. How did she go from that to this? And this is a direct quote. What you see on Dr. Fauci. This is what people say to me, that he doesn't represent science to them. He represents Joseph Mengele. Dr. Joseph Mengele, the Nazi doctor who did experiments on Jews during the Second World War and in the concentration camps. And I am talking about people all across the world are saying this because the response from COVID, what it has done to countries everywhere, what it has done to civil liberties, the suicide rates, the poverty, it has obliterated economies. The level of suffering that has been created because of this disease is now being seen in the cold light of day. End quote. Yep, she said it on Fox News primetime. That would be Lara Logan said it. And I assume she was serious. She's been condemned by many, many Jewish advocacy groups and other people, including several opinion columnists in major media, most notably Philip Bump of the Washington Post. In what would otherwise be a parody on a comedy show, Logan has a program airing on Fox streaming service, Fox Nation. It's called Lara Logan Has No Agenda. Better to substitute sense for agenda. What's baffling about Logan and some of the outlandish false assertions she makes is how Fox News even allows her to make them. Even in the face of withering criticism for her Fauci Mengele comparison, the broadcaster has yet to put any distance at all between it and Logan. It's true she hasn't been on air of late, but that could change anytime they need someone to make false assertions, like Sweden has had no vaccinations when in fact they've done more than 15 million. That's right. Lara Logan said, and I think this was on a program with Janine Pirro, Sweden has had no vaccinations. She asserted that as fact, when in fact, they've done more than 15 million. And Sweden, by the way, has a population of about 10 million people. Yet does Logan apologize for the Megala comparison, as numerous groups have demanded? Nope. She doubled down in a tweet storm that several groups said trivialized the suffering of millions at the hands of the Nazis. The larger issue is this, quite simply. Has Fox News no shame? They've kept silent about Logan as they've enabled right-wing ideologues as both commentators and guests throughout the years. Lara Logan isn't the first, nor will she be the last. She is more dangerous than most, because she constantly refers to her career as a serious journalist in spewing utter nonsense. In other words, she knows people will believe her nonsense because once they believed in her objectivity. It is truly sad to see. 
And before we leave you, we should note that the Omicron variant is starting to appear in countries all around the world. I don't know if Lara Logan thinks that's mythology or fake news or whatever. The levels are generally low, but they're growing and growing very quickly. Some countries have blocked entry to so-called red-listed African nations, the latest being Nigeria, as we told you last episode. What ought to dawn on nations imposing such restrictions is this. Viruses know no borders, nor do they respect them. If vaccinations are the first line of defense against Omicron or any other variants, it should follow that countries with large numbers of unvaccinated people could pose a threat to people in wealthy countries where vaccinated people are the overwhelming majority. Now, we should get something straight about this. There are many, many people, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, who are unvaccinated not by choice, but by circumstance. The vaccines simply haven't gotten to them yet. And the Omicron variant and future variants may well germinate and spread among these unvaccinated people. In wealthy countries, it is the unvaccinated who are coming down with COVID, who are being hospitalized uh, by COVID, and who are unfortunately dying by COVID. In other words, it would seem to me, and, and again, you know, this is just me, it would seem to me that wealthy countries have a vested interest in seeing to it as they properly boost their people, boost or jab their people, that they also work harder. I know they're trying, but they need to work harder to vaccinate people around the world that currently have little or no access to vaccines. These are now life-saving vaccines. It is stunning to contemplate that, for example, South Africa, a country that has arguably more people vaccinated than in most of its neighboring countries, South Africa is at 25%. Sub-Saharan Africa is currently at 7%. That's right, folks, 7%. And as I said, coronavirus knows no borders. It just doesn't. And it will spread, and it will morph, and it will vary. And some of these variants of the future will be resistant to the vaccines. What will we do then? How will we wring our hands like we do about school shootings and say to ourselves, what are we going to do? Closing borders is not the total answer. Patting yourself on the back about vaccine rollouts is not the total answer. The total answer is to get the regions of the world with large numbers of unvaccinated people and get them vaccinated. We will soon see, because we don't know just yet, whether Omicron is the kind of threat that some have imagined it could be. But it dawns on me, if rich nations have a vested interest in getting those poor countries of the world vaccinated, why not do it? It is about enlightened self-interest, isn't it? Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. 
The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well. <laughs>